Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I should invite you to take your copies of the scripture this morning, open to the book of Exodus, chapter 16. In a moment, we will read the entire 16th chapter. What a great way to begin a new year, gathered together around God's word, hearing from God, having him revealed to us through his word. Because this is the pattern that we see in the Bible. God reveals himself and his people respond. His people worship when he is revealed. So is there anything greater that we could do this morning than to hear from God's word, have him reveal himself through his word, and respond to him in worship and in praise with all that we are? As his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So would you stand as we read Exodus 16 together out of reverence and respect for God's word. We'll read these 36 verses together. Hear the word of the Lord. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt." When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, They looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? 
for they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came, to Mos- came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink. And there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years. Till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the tenth part of an ephah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our souls, O Lord, cling to the dust. Give us life according to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The way forward in the Christian life is a way of testing. There's no way around it. There's no way to escape it. There's no chance of opting out of it. If you are a Christian, you will be tested. If you want to progress as a Christian, if you want to be made more like Christ, if you want to be sanctified, holy, godly, you will be tested. But there's good news. If you are tested, you will be tested and trained by the Lord God himself. And when he tests you, all of who he is provides support in the midst of the test. His testing is not done so as to leave you on your own so that you can fend for yourself or to make you more independent. 
No, his testing is meant to draw you closer to him. The testing that we go through as Christians in this life is meant to pull us into the very heart of God himself. So let's just say this up front. The year 2022 will be a year of testing. Like the Israelites who had to be trained in the school of the wilderness, so we are still trained in the school of the wilderness today, in this life. And it will not end until Christ returns or calls us home. So instead of asking, why me, in the midst of our testing, maybe we should be saying, yes, me, why is this perspective necessary? Because the Lord tests, makes evident those who are his children. And so, through testing and training, the Lord's children are disciplined to be conformed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And so then, they have the assurance that God has set his steadfast, covenantal, never-ending love upon them. Testing is not meant to make you question. It's meant to give you assurance and security of the life that you have in Jesus Christ. It's meant to give you a sense of belonging, that you are a child of God. You are in God's family. That is why this is happening to you. We come to the school of the wilderness again in Exodus 16. We took a break from Exodus with our Advent series. But now this is the second test in the school of the wilderness. We've just gone over the end of Exodus 15 where people of Israel were camping at this place called Mara. The water was bitter, unable to be drunk. The Lord instructed Moses to throw a tree into the water. And when Moses threw the tree in the water, the water became sweet and the people were able to drink. Now we come to this second test. While that first test, we answered the question, who was going to heal the water or who was going to heal the Israelites? Now we come to another test. As the people here are in the wilderness of sin. That's a proper name. It doesn't have anything to do with sin as we might read other places in the Bible. And now it's about a month after they've come out of the land of Egypt. And think of what they had just seen. Here they were. They walked through the Red Sea on dry land with a wall of water to their left and to their right. They had seen the walls of water come crashing down upon their enemies, drowning them and leaving them dead and lifeless on the shore. Think of all they had seen with all of the various plagues that the Lord had brought upon Egypt. After they had seen all of this, after they had experienced all of this, if you were to experience all of that, how long of an impression would that leave upon you? Like, would you remember that for very long? Wow, look what God has done. And here, here, a short month after all of that, and the people of Israel are struggling. If you had walked through the Red Sea on dry land, would that have made any difference in your life? Should it have made a difference in the Israelites' life? Maybe if we're honest with our own hearts, we would say that we would be just as fickle as the Israelites. We would have forgotten just as quick. Wouldn't have made any difference. Now, as the people encamp in the wilderness of sin, 
They do what they did at the beginning of the last test. They grumble. They grumble against Aaron and Moses, and ultimately they grumble against the Lord. What are they grumbling about? Do you hear what they say? Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into, the, into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. How awful was their short-term memory? They're saying it would have been better to die a slave in Egypt with your belly full. It would have been better to die like the firstborn of the Egyptians who died in a single night by the hand of the destroyer. As long as you were full, your belly was satisfied, then having the Lord bring you out and perhaps, as they're beginning to think, cause this long, slow death of starvation. What is at the heart of grumbling? It's selfishness. You can hear it here in what they say. Would that we had died when we sat by the meat pots, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly. Their concern was not for the Lord or for what he wanted, how they might live for him in the wilderness. Their whole perspective was consumed with self. And their grumbling did what grumbling often does. We begin to imagine situations in an ideal and unrealistic way. Is that ever at the heart of our grumbling? We think of things in an idealistic and unrealistic way. Wasn't it better when we were in Egypt? Remember the good old days. We had all that we wanted to eat, the meat pots. Remember all of the food. In their minds, they idealized Egypt they made it look good, better than it actually was, and they were completely and willingly ignoring all of the bad. Their grumbling made it evident that they were living in a dream world, not in reality. So a grumbling heart is a selfish heart, and it's a heart that struggles with unbelief. Would the Israelites believe the Lord? Would our grumbling ever show a lack of faith in our own lives? We cannot sugarcoat it. Grumbling is never a sign of great faith. Instead, it reveals a lack of faith. Grumbling displays a disturbing lack of confidence in God. I wonder, though, as we think about grumbling, if we ever try to justify it in our own lives. Well, my grumbling is valid. I've got good reasons to grumble. It's justifiable. It's legit. I've earned the right to grumble. I deserve to be able to do this. Are you a grumbler, a complainer? You will never be satisfied until you are satisfied in God. Grumbling is not a sign of spiritual maturity. It's a, it's a sign of spiritual immaturity and it is unhealthy. Is there grumbling that perhaps you need to repent of today? And let's just put the shoe on the other foot for a moment this morning. How do you respond when someone grumbles against you? How dare you say that to me? How dare you grumble against me? 
we are unwilling to budge, we won't listen, we'll show them. We want them to receive what they rightly deserve. How does God respond to the Israelites grumbling? Praise him and thank him that he does not respond like we would respond when people grumble against us. What is God's response to their grumbling? God's response to grumbling is grace. Grace, grace, and more grace. Who is this? What kind of God lavishes his grace upon people who grumble against him? Who do these people think they are? Small, insignificant nothings who are grumbling against me, the almighty God of the universe, who created them, who brought them to life from dust. They are nothing. They deserve nothing. They've sinned against me. And what does our God do? Grace. I'm going to rain down bread from heaven upon you. I'm going to feed you supernaturally with this divine food that I am going to provide for you. You're hungry? Here's bread. Here's some more bread. Here's bread. Every single day, bread. Divine gift from the Lord to his people. How we might think it would be completely appropriate for God to rain down his wrath and judgment upon these people. To consume them with fire. Instead, he rains down bread from heaven. Oh, what grace do we see in the bread? It's not the bread that they deserve. It's not the bread that they have earned. It's not the bread that they have worked for. Is there grumbling in your heart? Is there grumbling that's coming out of your mouth? In your grumbling, will you see that God responds to you in grace and in love and in faithfulness? Oh, that he would remove the grumbling out of our mouths so that then we would open our mouths wide and let him fill it with his divine bread. And so the Lord says he is going to lay this great feast before the people. Quail, bread from heaven, We see the Lord's going to provide meat in the evening. This quail will come up. The people will eat the quail at twilight, which is reminiscent of the Passover. If you remember the Passover, they were to kill the lambs at twilight. Here again in the evening at twilight, they were going to be killing these quail that come up and eating them. And in the bread, they will, in the morning, they will eat bread. Notice this cycle here of evening to morning, evening to morning. This is not how we usually think. In our minds, we think morning, evening, morning, evening, right? New day is morning, and is evening, you start a new day. Not in the Jewish mind. In the Jewish mind, the day started with the evening, night. Then it went to morning, then evening. Where did they get this idea? They got it from God himself. This is how he created. You remember when God created every day? It said... And there was evening and morning on the fill-in-the-blank day, on the first day, on the second day, on the third day. That's how God created the world in the days. Evening, morning, on the each day. And so here the Lord is saying, I'm going to test you each and every day and you're going to have to rely upon me. In this cycle, and this test is for a particular reason, to see if you will walk in my law, to see if you will obey me, if you will do what I actually say. And notice the grounding of these cycles of evening and morning. In verse 6, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Wait a second. Didn't the people already know the Lord? Yes, but as we have already seen, their grumbling demonstrates that their knowledge of the Lord is deficient. When you truly know the Lord, when you know who He is, when your faith is in Him, you won't grumble against Him, you will praise Him. Do you know the Lord? 
Do you have a relationship with him that leads you to worship him? What was it that the Israelites needed to know? They needed to know the Lord, and it's clear through their stumbling and unbelief, they did not know him as they needed to yet. And so in the evening, it says they would know the Lord, and in the morning, they would what? See the glory of the Lord. And this is what took place. The whole assembly of Israel was invited to draw near before the Lord, and the people looked toward the wilderness, and they beheld the glory of Yahweh in the cloud. Here is this pillar of cloud that led them by the day. And when did they see the glory of the Lord? They saw it in the morning. In the morning, God brought the people the assurance that he had not left them, that they were not alone there in the wilderness. He was in control, and he would care for his people. And so he provided meat at twilight, and they were filled with bread in the morning. And why did God provide for them in this way? So that he would reveal his glory and so that they would know and have an intimate relationship and understanding and experience of his glory. And so we see this test. Would the people walk in his ways? Would they respond to him the way that they should respond? Would they obey him and follow his commandments? We see here in verses 12 and following three commandments that are given. Three commandments that are given to test the people, to teach them something about the Lord himself. He has laid a feast before them to instruct them. Will they learn from it? Will we learn from it? And so what does it teach us? The first thing it teaches us, you can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful. The first thing it teaches us, the Lord prepares a feast in the wilderness to teach us he will sustain us. The Lord prepares a feast in the wilderness to teach us he will sustain us. As the Lord had promised, so he made it come to pass. Quail came up in the evening. The Lord provided meat for the people. It appears that this initial provision of quail was a one-time event. More quail would come later, but it seems on this day this quail was a one-time event. The quail, however, is not the focus of the test text. The focus of the text is the bread. With the morning, dew came, and a fine, flake-like thing, which resembled frost, was on the ground. When the, people, they, when the people saw it, they asked, what is it? And that actually becomes the name of the bread, manna. Manna means, what is it? They had never seen anything like this before. They had never experienced anything like this before. Moses tells them, this is the bread that Yahweh has given you to eat. It's the bread that God rained down from heaven that he has provided. But this bread comes command, the first command. They were only to gather as much as they could eat. As one person could eat, they were to gather that much. And here, a miraculous event happened. Each gathered exactly what they needed for their household. Some gathered more, but they had nothing left over. Some gathered little, but they had no lack. Whatever they gathered, it was the Lord who would satisfy them, and he would satisfy them completely and perfectly. And then the command, do not leave any of the manna over until the morning. Very simple, very straightforward command. Whatever you gather day by day, use it up each day. Use it all up. But the people disobeyed. Some of them left some manna till the morning and it became rancid and inedible. The amazing manna was filled with maggots, it became stinky as it was left overnight. Why did the Lord give them this command? What was he teaching them? He was teaching them that he would sustain them. 
He would provide for them, and he would do this daily. Yahweh fights against the sin of the people who thought that they could hoard God's good gifts. Uh, we can hoard these up. We can store them. We'll go out, we'll collect a bunch of manna, and we're going to leave it overnight. So we'll make sure we have more in the morning. I mean, what if I can't go out tomorrow and gather manna? What if the manna is not there tomorrow morning? What if something keeps me from getting the manna that I need? What if, what if, what if? And Yahweh says, no more what ifs. I will take care of you each and every day. I will sustain you. I will provide for you. But you have to trust me. You have to depend upon me entirely. No holding back. You have to put your life in my hands and you have to trust me, the Lord says, one day at a time. But what about tomorrow? But what about a year from now? But what about 10 years from now? I don't know what will happen tomorrow. I don't know what will happen a year from now. I don't know what will happen 10 years from now. But I do know this. God has not called you to trust him in blocks of decades. God has called you to trust him today. Do you trust him daily? Or... Are you trying to hold something over to tomorrow just in case? God is teaching the Israelites the same thing that Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 6, verses 34 through 31 to 34. He says this, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Why are you worried about tomorrow? Each day has its own amount of trouble that you have to trust the Lord for. How do you know if you are trusting the Lord day by day, moment by moment? Are you anxious? Are you worried? Are you stressed out? God's daily provision is meant to strengthen your trust in Him. He was teaching the Israelites to pray the same thing that Jesus teaches us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. And look at verse 21. This is fascinating. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Why is that in there? I think there's this sense of urgency and there's a sense of expediency behind this verse. Don't put it off. Don't procrastinate. Trust the Lord today, now. He's provided what you need. Don't think, oh, well, it will be there when I need it later on. Trust him now. Don't procrastinate. Don't put it off. Don't presume upon God's good and gracious gifts. But number two, the Lord prepares a feast in the wilderness to teach us he will supply rest. The Lord prepares a feast in the wilderness to teach us he will supply rest. In verses 22 through 30, we're given the second command. So remember, they were to gather as much as they could for one day, each person. They were to leave nothing over till the next day. 
But now there is an exception to that rule. The exception was the Sabbath. It was to be a day of solemn rest for God's people. Whatever they had gathered on the sixth day, some of it was to be laid aside until the morning. They would gather manna every day except the seventh day. They would not go out and gather manna. And it's a miraculous thing that happens, isn't it? They leave it over, and it doesn't do what manna usually does. Remember, if you leave manna overnight, usually it breeds worms and it stinks. But on the sixth night, into the seventh day, it didn't go bad. The Lord kept it. And so they had what they needed for the seventh day to eat. And they didn't need to go out to look for manna because the Lord had supplied rest for them. But again, the people disobeyed. Remember, as we read in the text with the first command, the people disobeyed, they left some over, and it got rotten. Well, here again in this second command, some people go out to look for the manna on the seventh day, but they did not find any. They disobeyed. And look at what the Lord says. <clears throat> How long will you refuse to keep my commandments? It's verse 28. If you go back just a few pages in your Bible to chapter 10, verse 3. <clears throat> this is Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh. They say to Pharaoh in 10.3, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? You hear an echo there? Now the Lord is saying to the Israelites, how long will you refuse to obey me? Israelites, why are you acting like Pharaoh? Why are you acting like the Egyptians? Why won't you trust me? Why won't you walk in my ways? And how this verse becomes a foreshadowing for a lot of the Old Testament, isn't it? The Israelites failed to obey God's commands time and time and time again. How long will you refuse to obey me? The Israelites were acting more like the Egyptians than like the holy people God had called them to be. This is the struggle. God had taken his people out of Egypt, but there was still Egypt in his people. And so the Lord gives them this command. The seventh day is a solemn day of rest, Sabbath day. We'll unpack this even more when we come to the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. The focus here on the rest the people were to receive from the Lord on the seventh day each week. And this is one of the ways in which we and all believers demonstrate our trust in God. It's our ability to rest. Let me say that again. One of the ways in which you demonstrate that your trust is in the Lord is in your ability to rest. How many people are so busy? They fill up their lives with stuff. They go from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. I hear things like, Pastor, I'm sorry I haven't been at church for a while. I've just been so busy. Yes, you've been too busy. People are busy with their jobs. People are busy with their family. People are busy with their hobbies. They could even be busy with ministry or serving in the church. But busyness is not next to godliness. Yet that's the way our mind is wired by the productive demands that are placed upon us in the culture and in the world in which we live. Look at how much that person has done. They must be really godly. Have you ever heard someone 
say, look at how well that person rests. They really know God. Yet that might be more accurate. This is not an excuse for laziness, but there is something to be said for the pattern of life God established at creation. He created the world in six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested, and he blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy because he rested from all his work that he had done. Do you know that's the very first thing in the Bible that's called holy? The first thing in the Bible that's called holy is the Sabbath day, not God. Now, I would argue that it's holy because it's set up by a holy God. But if there is no space or place for rest in your life, it's not a good thing. We might even say it's an ungodly thing. God-given rest comes with a reason and it comes with a purpose. Spiritual vitality and spiritual vigor are shown in how you rest. I often go for runs and there's something that I've heard recently this past year. My father-in-law in particular told me this Sometimes you need to run slow to run fast. That doesn't make any sense, does it? <laughs> run slow to run fast. How many of us are running so fast? Spinning our wheels. Trying to get somewhere. Trying to get something done. that we've never really rested. God is trying to supply rest to his people. Would we resist that rest? I'm good, God. I can keep going. I'm like the Energizer Bunny. I've got it under control. Busyness is good. Look at all that I'm getting done. I'm productive. I'm checking things off my list left and right. pattern of rest in our lives means that we are spiritually healthy and spiritually growing. It doesn't hold us back. In fact, it propels us forward. Walking in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you can't rest, it's because you're not trusting God. Number three, the Lord prepares a feast in the wilderness to teach us he will secure our future. The Lord prepares a feast in the wilderness to teach us he will prepare or he will secure our future. This is verses 31 through the end. And we've been going through these commands. First command, don't hold any manna overnight. The people disobey. <laughs> Second command, don't go out on the seventh day, but rest. I will supply for your needs. What do the people do? They disobey. They go out and they search for man on the seventh day. Third command now comes to Moses, and it's take some of this manna. In fact, take an omer of this manna. So an omer was what was to be used each day for each person. Each person was to have an omer as a, a measuring a way to measure the manna so that they could keep it for themselves. Take an omer, put that in a jar, and put that before the testimony. The testimony would be the tablets of the Ten Commandments, the ten words from God that would come later in Exodus 20. And there, it would be kept throughout the generations so that the generations would look at this jar of manna and they would remember how the Lord had provided for them in the wilderness, how the Lord had cared for them, how he had sustained them, how he had given them rest. And notice that this manna was to be placed before the testimony of the Lord, those Ten Commandments, 
It was to be placed before the word of the Lord. As a reminder, this manna was for them as they lived out God's word, for them to obey God's word. The manna was to point them to God and to his ways. And so Moses now takes some manna, puts it in a jar to be kept throughout the generations. Notice the pattern is broken. Command, disobedience. Command, disobedience. Command, obedience. I think there's hope in that pattern that Israel's disobedience, perpetual disobedience, will one day be broken. Israel's disobedience will not be the final word for them, but obedience will come from Israel. Obedience will come and break the pattern. And that's hope for a future. Forty years, the Israelites gathered this manna in the wilderness. Forty years, day by day. I don't know the math. You can do the math. How much the Lord provided for them day after day after day. They wake up in the morning, they go out and they collect manna. They wake up in the morning, they go out and they collect manna. Each day it is there. Until when? Until they cross the Jordan. And they come into the land of Canaan. They come into the land that was flowing with milk and honey. The land that God had promised. And what happened? You can read about it in Joshua 5, 12. The manna ceases. It stops. The Lord has fed his people all the way through the wilderness and brought them to their destination, to their homeland, the place that he had promised to give them. He prepared a feast in the wilderness to secure their future, to take care of them, to bring them all the way home where they needed to be. Why did God do all of this? Deuteronomy chapter 8 gives us a good summarization. This is verse 3 of Deuteronomy chapter 8. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The bread wasn't the point. What was the point? Live by my words. Live by what I say. My words are good. They are trustworthy and they are true. You can stake your lives upon my words. Live by them. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Is that your life? Does that describe you? I am one who lives by God's word and God's word alone. His word is what I need. And I need it daily, and I need it often. And it gets me through. And it gets me rest. And it gives me hope. I would be negligent at this point if we did not place this event in redemptive history in its proper context. The bread that rained down from heaven pointed to other bread that would one day rain down from heaven. And we read about it already in John 6. This is what Jesus says. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus Christ is the true manna. He is the bread that we need. And this is what one Puritan says. His name is Richard Sibbs. He says this, Manna was a type of Christ. It came from heaven to feed the hungry bodies of the Israelites in the wilderness. 
Even so came Christ, sent from God the Father to be the eternal food and upholder of the souls and bodies of every one of us. Manna was white and sweet, so was Christ white in righteousness and holiness and also sweet to delight the soul. Manna fell upon the tents in the night and Christ came when darkness was spread over all the world. God gave manna freely from heaven, so Christ was a free gift and he freely gave himself to death even to the cursed death of the cross for us. In the wilderness, God gave a feast of quail and manna, but now the feast is Christ himself. He is a better feast. He is the all-satisfying feast. He is the feast that leads us to the ultimate feasts of feasts, the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you don't need Jesus to sustain you day by day, moment by moment, hour by hour, breath by every single breath, something is wrong. It's now our receiving our feast of Jesus that sustains us. How are we able to make it through the day? We're not able without Christ. It's now receiving the rest that he supplies. It's a rest that we can enter into because Christ has done all the work necessary for our salvation. We don't have to work our way into salvation. We don't have to climb our way up to God. We don't have to make ourselves worthy enough or do enough to earn heaven. No, Jesus has done it all. So we can enter the rest he provides Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And where else will our future be secure but in him and in him alone? The provision of himself that we feast upon will see us through to the very end, to the day we cross the River Jordan and enter into Emmanuel's land, the place where God's glory dwells forever and forever. And what a reversal we see in John 6. Did you notice that reversal as we read it this morning? Jesus proclaims, I am the bread of life. I am the true manna. What did the Jews do? John 6, 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. Hmm, that sound familiar? Notice in Exodus 16, the people grumble because they have no bread, but in John 6, the people grumble because they have the true bread sent from heaven. But it's not the bread that they want. He is the feast we call people to come and to partake of. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds upon His flesh and drinks His blood has eternal life, and He will raise them up on the last day. That's the promise that Christ makes. There is a warning as we come to this banquet feast. And maybe the best way to end this sermon is just to go straight into our time around the Lord's Supper. There is a warning as we come to this banquet feast. Here you are with all of the trimmings and the trappings, all of the food laid out before you on this great table. But you remain in a state of famine. You are seated at the table, but you are starving to death. How many think it's enough just to be invited to the party? That it's just enough to gather around the table? That it's just enough to rub elbows with a few people, to crack a few jokes? They don't want to miss the party. Many may even consider them to be the life of the party. And there are those who are willing to behold all the delicacies and all the delights of the food They see how delicious it looks to their eyes, but they never eat it, they never taste it, they never digest it. Merely looking at the feast, but never partaking in the feast will never nourish your soul. You will gain nothing. Having only looked at the feast, but never eaten the feast means you have no spiritual life. It doesn't matter that you are at the feast. It doesn't matter that you've 
seen the food. It doesn't matter that you've had a good time. Too busy amusing yourself. You have not done the necessary thing, the most important thing. You haven't eaten. It is these who are the hearers of the word, but never the doers of the word. What does the Bible say about such a person? They deceive themselves. Thinking they have it all, they have nothing. Convincing themselves that they are all right when they are not. Believing they possess everything they need when in truth they possess nothing and are spiritually bankrupt and starving to death. Have you ever tried to feed a child that doesn't want to eat? Have you ever tried to get a spoon of baby food into those pursed lips? We do all of the silly things of flying the food through the air, trying to get the child to open his or her mouth. I cannot force you to eat. I cannot shove the food into your mouth, down your throats, and into your bellies. How I want to. How I long to. I cannot make you eat. You have to taste and see that the Lord is good. You have to eat. You have to take in the food. Feast on Christ. Receive him by believing in his name. Confess him as Lord. Believe that God has raised him from the dead on the third day after he died on the cross, bearing the punishment for sinful man. Repent of your sin. Trust him entirely, exclusively, and extensively, and he will make you alive, and he will give you life. And this feast will be the best feast that you have ever known in your whole entire life and forever. Let me guarantee this. When you partake of this feast, you will never, ever be disappointed. And you will never, ever need to go anywhere else. Who is this feast for? As we take this bread and this cup, who is this feast for? This feast is for those who are in the wilderness. It's for those who are not home yet. It's for those who have come out of Egypt. And so this feast is for the same. It's for us Christians who are living as exiles in this wilderness. It's for us Christians who understand that we are not home yet. It's for us Christians who have been released from our bondage to sin. It's not for those who are of this world, who call this world their home, who are still bound and dominated by their sin. It's for all those who have put their faith and trust in Christ and in Him alone. The bread that represents His body the blood that represent, or the, the, the juice that represents his blood shed for us. It is this that we gather together as Christians, as those who belong to Christ, to participate, to say, yes, we are those who are on this journey together, feasting on Christ day by day, moment by moment, hour by hour, breath by breath. No turning back, no giving in. Whatever this world brings upon us, bring it on, world. We feed on Christ. This is what Revelation 12 focuses on. If you turn there with me, real quick. Real quick. Revelation 12, verse 6. A little bit before that. Old 
lot before that. Let me start just at verse 1. Revelation 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Did you hear that? This woman, who I would say is a representation of the people of God, flees into the wilderness after Christ comes, after it condenses all of Christ's life and ministry into a short, short phrase. He's born and then he's caught up to heaven. And then what? The woman has to flee into the wilderness. And what's happened when this woman is fleeing into the wilderness? She has a place there prepared by God in which what? She is nourished. Why was John writing this? He was writing this to encourage churches in the midst of their persecution. Church, people of God, you are in the midst of persecution. You are in the midst of the threat of this dragon that's wanting to devour you. And I am going to nourish you. I am going to feed you. I am going to take care of you. Do not be worried about the persecution that might come. Do not worry about the hardships that the world might place upon you. Do not be worried about the threats of death. I will nourish you. I will feed you. I will take care of you. Do we ever have this in mind as we come to the table? This bread and this cup remind us in the midst of persecution and hardship we're being given Christ. We are fed with Him. We can go on. We can endure. We do not have to give up or give in. We do not have to love our lives, but we can even be a living sacrifice given to Him. If you need a cup, if you didn't get one on the way in, Craig Baker will be in the back there. Just raise your hand, make it known that you need one of those, and he'll make sure you get it. But take this bread in your hand. Take a few moments to thank the Lord for the body that was given for us on the cross. Take a moment, pray to him. Father, we think of this bread that we have in our hands which represents the body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We think of the sacrifice that he made for us so that we could partake of this feast. We think of what he endured, bearing our sin and our shame on that tree so that we might be forgiven and so that we might be reconciled to you. Father, may you nourish us with this bread, we pray. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Take and eat. Take a moment to meditate on the blood of Christ that cleanses us from our sin. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the de that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Take and drink.
I pray that this morning you've been satisfied by the feast that comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. Our benediction comes from that same chapter in John, chapter 6. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else are we to go than to the one who has the words of eternal life? Go with his words this week. You are dismissed. Thank you.